accepted what he had to say without all this trying to bring in all these technical reasons of this and why this was spelled this way today and it's spelled differently to the next day and uh, idiotic things like that. So we hardly learned anything, I mean, by doing that. Did Baba give any discourses? Baba used to give talks, yes, sometimes, but then the trouble is I w- what number were taken down and not Kitty may have managed to take some down because she and I think it was Nadine used to surreptitiously take out their pencils and papers to write down notes. But whenever Baba saw that, he never liked it, you know. Sometimes he would uh, have stopped the talk or at least make them, if he got engrossed in the talk, make them stop writing. So that's why very often sometimes some of Baba's talks were garbled by people not always remembering correctly what Baba said. But he used to, with the group there, I give quite a few talks when he used to come. Other times then we'd have games with Baba or just sit and talk or one night we put on a fancy dress for him and got a prize, whoever was the best uh, costume or the one that was the funniest costume. And, uh, Baba, oh yes, Baba always liked that sort of thing. So, as I say, uh, Kaka, Kaka was the one who sort of helped to look after the household, though Norina at that time was supposed to be the sort of overseer of all. And uh, Kaka's English was very limited, but every now and then Baba would tell Kaka that he must give us a speech. And then he'd admonish us all not to smile, not to laugh even, and uh, that we should sit very serious and listen to Kaka's speech. So we would assemble in the dining room, and Baba would sit at one end of the table, the long table, and Kaka would be at the other, standing up and giving his speech. And it used to be beautiful, because it would be in this sort of stilted English, and very much to the point of how we should behave with the master, and no disgust, and so on and so forth. And Baba would sit and cause shake with laughter over this talk, but we had to, Baba would give us a look in the eye, if, if at all even we dared smile, so we'd have to sit very seriously and absorb this very uh, forceful talk of Kaka's, because uh, he, he did it with such sincerity, and all the things he told us were so good, and for what uh, sort of uh, greenhorns should know and uh, how to talk or what respect they should have for their master and, and not be this uh, sort of haphazard Westerners that sort of flip things off with just uh, uh, anyhow as they liked. A number of times Kaka gave us talks. And uh, when Baba wasn't there, uh, we used to naturally do what all you young ones now do, and that is to want to hear Baba stories from those who had been with Baba. So naturally, we would get a hold of Kaka, we would get a hold of Chanji, we would get a hold of Adi Jr., whoever happened to be there with and staying at the ashram at the time. And we would get together in somebody's room down in the uh, other building, and away from the main building, and talk, not so late, say 10 o'clock, half past 10 in the night. And our idea of, of uh, you know, having a spree was to somebody'd buy some toffees or somebody'd get some sweet drinks, and then we'd sit and hear stories about Baba. Now, Norina and Elizabeth used to go to bed very early. Nani used to retire to her room, but uh, Norina always objected to my going down to the other house, 
because uh, she insisted on keeping the door locked. And then that meant that when I came back, uh, she would have to unlock the door and let me in. So she remonstrated a number of times with me, and I didn't see why I should miss out on listening to Baba's stories. After all, I wasn't leading a wild life down there. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to absorb as much as I could about Baba. And uh, so I, I was very irked about this. So when Baba came one time to uh, Nasik, I brought up the subject and I said, after all, Baba, I'm a responsible person. And I said, if Narina leaves the, the door unlatched, I'll be very careful to lock it. And I need to disturb nobody. Otherwise, I can't climb through the windows. All the windows are shut there on the veranda. So I have to disturb somebody. And after all, I'm not so late. So Baba after that said yes that I could stay out and Narina should no more longer think about the front door and that I would lock it. So after that, then I felt quite free to come and go and listen to Baba's stories. How did you get uh, along in the ashram? Were there many... Oh, like any place where people of, of varied temperaments are together, there would often be clashes of temperament. Uh, stupid things, things that were really not worth arguing or fighting about, but these clashes did occur, and very often, as anything, would, they would come to Baba's ears, and then Baba would have to straighten out and make each embrace the other and forget and start again. And uh, I can remember, I mean, later on we learned to control our moods and all that, but in those days we were still uh, egotistical enough, I suppose you call it, to think of oneself only. And if you felt moody, well, you just became moody. And uh, sometimes you would do it maybe to get Baba's attention. And uh, I don't know, it depends on the individual and the way they were. I can remember one time Kitty getting very moody, and Kitty disappeared. And nobody could find Kitty. We looked high and low over the whole compound and all the rooms in all the houses. Nowhere else could Kitty be found. And we know that Kitty wouldn't go off the property because we'd been given strict instructions that for a certain length of time we were not to leave the property. So at last somebody had the bright idea to look in this little grass hut which had been built for Baba, but whether Baba used it or not, I don't remember. And sure enough, there was Kitty in there, very moody and sulking. So she was coaxed to come back, and then Baba, of course, <laughs> wooed her out of that <laughs> mood, and she was all right. So when you see our dear Kitty these days yeah, now, with our happy mood, you'd never know that she had those moods in the early days. We all went through that soon, somewhere or another. Sometimes it used to be just because one had such an overwhelming feeling for Baba that somehow you couldn't always express Take myself, for instance. If I felt something very much and I wouldn't want to give vent to it or show it, my only way of hiding it is to be abrupt and gruff with other people. So people used to think that I was a very sort of nasty-tempered individual, whereas really, underneath it all, uh, I wasn't, but there was a surface thing to, to hide what I was feeling underneath because I didn't like to express uh, what I really felt about things. Baba always sort of brought this out, didn't he? I mean, he oh, Baba always. He let things simmer to a moment, but then. Uh, he'd always bring them out sooner or later. He'd always bring them out sooner or later. 
Now, one of the, the most uh, first time, I'd say, I, I ever realized that Baba was more than just this flesh and blood that I could see, was that one night, must have been towards morning, I was awakened with a, by a, seeing a blinding light. My heart was beating so fast. And in that light was Baba's face. And everything was twirling like sort of pinwheels of light going like this, radiating. But with that light and with that vision of Baba, there was such a, such a feeling of ecstasy that I, I know it was no longer me. I felt as if I was being absorbed into that, so that I was not myself anymore, but just being absorbed into Baba. And then that light went. It's, yeah, I kept trying to recapture it all the time, but I couldn't. And then uh, slowly, slowly, my heartbeat just went back to normal again. And I told Baba about it the next day, and he nodded his head. First, I wasn't saying anything to Baba. Baba kept hinting one time. Baba was lying on the couch. And you know how Baba used to have us sometimes take turns to press his legs? And uh, Baba said, so what were you dreaming last night? You see? <laughs> oh, I tried to hedge and, 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 you know, try to make out I didn't know what Baba was talking about because I didn't want to tell and what I'd felt and seen. And Baba gradually then brought it out of me. He said, hmm? I said, yes, Baba, it's something that I'll never forget. And Baba, Baba tried to make me tell the others, but I sort of mumbled about it so that it didn't catch on because I just wanted to sort of keep it to myself. As a matter of fact, this is the first time I've ever told this, even on a mic. So how long did the, Nash, uh, the Gnostic ashram Gnostic last? Gnostic lasted, well, as I say, uh, after about birthday. the 37th birthday. But then after that, say maybe about March, April. By that time, Baba started. First, Garrett went. And then Baba decided that he wanted to go to the West that summer. And he wanted to go to Cannes and he wanted to take the women with him, and some of the Mandali. So he sent Kitty and Margaret and Delia back, and then Kitty was to come back to Cannes and from England and try to find villas, because Baba would want one villa for the women where he would stay and a few of us would stay with them, and uh, the other one where all the Mandali and the married couples and the people from outside would come, where Baba would go every day. Like Baba goes over to the Mandali, so in going that way, he would go from one villa to the other where he would give darshan and uh, see to his correspondence and everything. So it was decided that all would go. Uh, Ruano went by boat, a different line. It was a cheaper line that she was going on. She could get a boat. It would take a little longer to get there. And there would be Nani, myself, Norina and uh, Elizabeth, and they were, uh, would, and I would be going with uh, Baba to 
from the same boat to Ken. So everything was arranged, all the arrangements were made, and we were, Baba was coming from Meribad with the women, and uh, we were coming from Nasik, and we were to be in Bombay, we were to be in Bombay ahead of Baba. So Baba had given me strict instructions, because Mare in those days it was so strict she mustn't even see a man. So Baba said there mustn't be a man in sight in the hotel when we arrived that morning. He was arriving very, very early in the morning. So my duty was to receive them at the door, take them upstairs to their rooms and see that everything was all right. So when I got up that morning and came out into the hallway, I saw what I call corpses all over the floors, people lying with shanda sh sheets. Everywhere you had to weave your way in and out among these people lying in the corridors. So my heart sank. I said, what will I do? What will Baba say? How can I get rid of these people? And Baba's going to come and you see you haven't done anything and I told her not to have anybody in sight when I come. So I thought, if I wake these people, what will I do with them? And they won't know what I'm talking about because I can't talk their language. And it, it may be more confusion. At least now they're quiet and they're asleep and they're under their sheets. So I kept praying, Baba, Baba, don't let any of them come out from under their sheets till you get here. So sure enough, Baba came in. As soon as Baba stepped down from the car, I said, Baba, there are corpses all over the floor. <laughs> Baba looked at me. I said, you know, people with white sheets over them. And I said, I, I didn't dare wake them because I said I didn't know what to do with them. And I, I, I said, I, I haven't been able to obey your order. I can't remove them. But I said, at least they're not visible. They're under the sheet. So I said, is it all right? We can get Mara upstairs before anybody gets up. I said, it's all right. It's all right. All he wanted me to do is to do my best to try in case somebody was there. So it would have worked all right. All right. So when we got on shipboard, my idea of being on shipboard is to be up on deck, enjoy the nice fresh air and everything. And uh, Chandy's idea of, of uh, uh, privacy was to put these poor women way down in the very bottom of the boat at the rear end of the boat, right above the propeller. <laughs> and we were, we were traveling in the bay there in, in uh, what do you call it, monsoon. So the waves were so choppy and it was so rough that all the portholes had to be shut. And all the time this boat was coming out and that screw would make that horrible grinding sound and then the boat would sink down in again. So of course, at that rear end, you got even more motion than you would in the middle of the boat. is always there. But his instructions have been to find a secluded part on the boat. So his idea, that was, I say, his idea of seclusion. So Baba comes up on deck the first day. You see, we had only just left Bombay. And I was thinking, gosh, will I ever see India again? All the luggage had gone with me. That canvas I had to roll up and take with me to can everything. I hadn't left anything in India. And I was wondering if I'd ever see India again. And the Baba comes up on deck and said, what are you doing here? Aren't you enjoying the fresh air? Well, you go down to the cabin. I said, but Baba, there's so many people down there. Never mind, you go down. So there I was after that, stuck down there, that boat going down, up and down like this, having to sort of do watch duty outside of the uh, mayor's room in case some drunk or somebody would come down the passageway. Sometimes Norina would take over, and but she would... You know, she didn't sit in the passage. I actually had the job in the evening time to go and sit in that passage, as I see, in case somebody comes down. So uh, even though I'm a fairly good sailor, I said, I need fresh air. And I said, gosh, what kind of duty will I do here if I'm going to start getting sick? So I got a hold of the stewardess, 
And I said, well, what do you do when you're uh, feeling sort of queasy and you have to look after all these people and bring their meals to them in their, in their stateroom and everything? So she said, I have to take a big tablespoonful of Worcester sauce. So I said, all right, you bring me a bottle of Worcester sauce and a big tablespoon. That's clever. That was really clever. So I, I had no place to sit, so I had to sit on the floor. So I was sitting with my feet out like this, you see, on the floor with my back that way facing the door where Mera was. And uh, I said, I think before I start feeling funny, I better have a bit of Worcester sauce, you see. So I took my big tablespoonful and I was nicely pouring it out. I just had a feeling somebody's looking at me over my shoulder, you see. So I look up. This is Bob looking down at me. What are you doing? trying not to be sick. <laughs> All right, so Bob would drink it down. I must say, I wasn't sick the whole trip. I weathered it very well. And then Bobby used to allow Noreen and me a couple of hours in the day to go up on deck and get some fresh air. And then again, we'd come down again. But I mean, that was the beginning of my training in, in uh, sort of, before I even realized that I might be later on with Baba. And... Uh, so it was a really very nasty trip, a horrible trip. And uh, Baba made up for it when we left Cannes and came back because we came back on a one-cabin boat where we were up on the on the uh, boat deck and uh, ate delicious meals. We had nice, calm weather. And everything was very beautiful. So that erased all that horrible trip in Mara's mind and the others because, I mean, it was really, I mean, we, we were most comfortable. Where did you land? In, in Marseille? We landed in Marseille, and then from Marseille we motored over to Cannes. No, actually we went by train to Cannes. So then uh, Kitty met us there. Bobby didn't like a certain arrangement she'd made, so we went looking for another villa, and then we found just the villa that Bobby liked. So in that villa were the girls, and then there was uh, Norina and Elizabeth, myself and Kitty. Nani and all the others, Ruano, and they all stayed down in the Mondays house. And then every day I used to walk with Baba part of the way to uh, the villa, and then halfway Elizabeth would meet us and pick up Baba, and then I would go on down with Baba to the house. For the first few days I used to chit-chat with people and have myself a nice time and then wander back to the other villa. After that happened, uh, Baba must have seen me or heard me. The first thing I knew was Baba said, you're not to talk with anybody here. You may say good morning if you want to, but as soon as you've left me, you're allowed 20 minutes to see Nani, and then you have to go back to the other house. So poor Nani, she'd write down all the lists of the things that she had to say to me. She said, but she said why do you, can you only stay this little while? I said, orders. <laughs> As I say, Baba was beginning to train me yeah, in just at that short time. That's a very uh, bit different from the last time that Baba was in Europe. Oh, and yes, yeah. because there I was very free and uh, everything was uh, I mean, pretty much on your own still. But this was, I was just towing the mark. I could just say hi and and <laughs> walk out the house and go on back. And then that time, Baba had me supposedly working on that canvas again. I'd stretched it all, the chart. But then I found myself spending most of the time out the window Wondering, you know, Baba, there'd be rumors every now and then that would Baba would be going back. And uh, then I think, oh, gosh, am I ever going to see Baba again? And then Baba said to us one day, well, if we could arrange to get Mohammed to uh, Ken, then he would be willing to stay a year. So I think you've heard from Sarosh the experience of 
there. Manly getting one man to can. Tremendous difficulty oh, getting the passport. passport. I mean, you can imagine taking a must. And he uh, urinated and on deck and everything. Oh, I know. <laughs> Terrible. Anyway, they got him there. They made an arrangement. There was a little sort of small house on the property, and they fixed a special bathroom where Baba could bathe them and all that. But that only lasted a short time. Baba decided by the end of, uh, oh, must have been in October. We were, we were there on gone only about three months uh, that we should come back to uh, India. Well, at that time, I knew that Narina and Kitty were definitely coming. But there was no even uh, murmur about anybody else. So I used to wonder, now when am I going to see Baba? Now now that it's definite that Baba's coming back, you know. I mean, I, I had that feeling somehow that Baba wouldn't be coming often to the West. I don't know why. So I just used to wonder. And then one day Baba called me to the room and said, how would you like to go back to India with me? I said, would I? Now that reminds me that when we were in Nasik, we used to take occasional trips from Nasik over to Meribad. So the very first time that we met, that is the women, we met the uh, Indian women on the hill. Uh, Baba called us the next day there in uh, Nasik and uh, asked us individually what our reaction was to having met the Indian women. So when my turn came, and Baba said, how did you like it at Meribad, and meeting the others, and being up on the hill? Oh, I said, Baba, very nice, but not for me. I mean, the very fact of being up on a hill, and just being with a bunch of women, and never being able to go out when you liked, and how you felt, and all that sort of thing, just to me, to me, was absolutely something unimaginable. So at the time, Baba smiled, didn't say anything, or comment on my statement. And only after that time in, not in uh, Ken, when Baba asked me, would you like to come back with me? And I said, would I? Afterwards, all that picture of Nasi <laughs> came back to me, and I said, now, Rondo, look what you've done. Now you've let yourself in for it. As I say, in those <coughs> days in Ken, I didn't have any specific jobs to do excepting to escort Barbara in the morning. And uh, most of my time I was supposed to be doing painting on the chart. And uh, at that time, I lived on the third floor with Norina and Elizabeth. And Bobby used to have a room at the very end. And every night, Kaka used to come up the back stairs and do night duty with Baba. And the next day, he would leave. Nobody ever even knew that Cocker came into the house. Now, Irene Billow was a Swiss girl who came and joined us and used to help in the household. Her duty was to look after Baba's room and a small adjoining room that was there with a couch on it. She would make Baba's bed up every day, change the towels, clean the room. And she also used to uh, tidy up the little room adjoining. A long time after this episode of Ken, she told us in, when she came to Meribad that uh, she had not known at the time that Kaka used to come do night watch duty. She thought that Baba would sometimes maybe be restless and go from his bed and lie on that couch in the next room because that also was a bit disturbed. 
and uh, then would come back again. So the little curls that she used to see on the pillow, little bits of curly hair, she used to carefully collect them all and put them by, and then she found out years later that they were Kaka's hairs and not Baba's. <laughs> so I can remember a number of times uh, Kaka would come after I'd been sound asleep and knock on my door. I would get up and say, yes, what is it? And Kaka would say, Baba wants you. So I would get into my dressing gown and go down to the end, and uh, Baba would be lying awake there under his mosquito curtain. Were you sleeping? Yes, Baba. So then Baba would tell me, now tomorrow you remind me that uh, I want so many bottles of soda water. Yes, Baba. Then I would stand there. Now you can go, said Baba. He would signal for me to go. I would go back to my room, get snugged into my bed, just be about going to sleep again. Again, nap, tap, tap on the door. There would be Kaka again. Baba wants you. And then I would go down, and Baba would again give me some irrelevant instructions that I should remind him about something the next day. And then he would dismiss me. He did this at intervals uh, while we were there. And at the time, I, I couldn't understand why Baba should get me up in the middle of the night and uh, just about something that he could very easily have told me about the next morning. Then I realized a long time after that all this was just being a testing of me, of what sort of a disposition I might have in the middle of the night when I would be called out about something that would be absolutely irrelevant. But somehow or other, I seemed to have stood the test all right, because as I say, Baba called me to Meribad. But I know one night, I was awakened by Kaka to say that the house was on fire, and I better go down and see what was happening. And sure enough, when I came out in the hall, the whole place was full of smoke. I couldn't see where there was any fire, so I got way down to the ground floor and found that the, that all this uh, smoke was coming from the kitchen. There was one of those old-fashioned French coal stoves, and somebody had not <laughs> opened or closed the flue, whichever you're supposed to do, and all the smoke was coming into the house. Bob, in the meantime, also got up and came down, and Kaka came down, and uh, we made sure everything was all right, and opened all the windows, aired the place, and then closed the windows again. And after everything was all nicely settled, Bob had gone up to his room, I had gone back to get bed again. Then, sure enough, <laughs> Kaka comes along, says, Baba goes, says, go downstairs again and see that everything is still all right. So again, I went down and then came up again and reported. So that's how Baba used to do. Sometimes one wondered why Baba did the things he did. Other times one just uh, accepted that this is Baba's way of doing things, and you might as well, if you want to be with Baba, conform to Baba's ways and uh, not quibble about it. I know one experience that I had which made a strong impression on me regarding this was uh, when I was first in Meribad, and uh, we always had to get up very early. It always seemed to be we were getting up in the dark, and I never cared getting up early in the morning. And this particular morning, I was rather slow in getting dressed. And uh, there's the kitchen there, uh, where the big kitchen where we used to sit and eat, and there was a table which 
Bobby used to recline on. It was made into sort of a couch for him. And uh, I heard somebody calling me. And he said, Baba wants you. So I hurried with my dressing and came to see, ah, Baba wants me, what is it? So Baba smiles at me very sweetly and says, listen to the kettle sing. Listen to the kettle sing? But my, to myself, I was saying, Baba's called me all the way from the room just for that. My expression must have sort of betrayed my thoughts because when Baba looked at me and he shook his head, and he said, it's not the fact of the kettle singing, but the fact that I thought of you to call you is what is important. And that made such an impression on me. I said, now this I must never forget and never judge things by their outwardness. And Baba always has something deeper that he means only sometimes when it's not quick enough in the uptake to realize it. But I felt so badly when after that. <laughs> oh, I felt so small. I mean, you can't help it when Baba does things like that. I know sometimes if I would get upset about something, I mean, the only time I ever really cried much in my life is since I came to Baba. Baba didn't have to say anything to me, but if I did something that he disapproved of or that disappointed him, Baba just had to give me one look. And that one look just annihilated me to such an extent that I would weep for hours. And then Baba would say, now stop crying. And I said, Baba, unless you turn off the tap, I can't. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, the hours that I wept over just something that I felt that I disappointed Baba about. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible feeling. And then Baba tells you to forget about it. The thing is over. Baba being Baba naturally... It, this was all nothing to him, but a little nothing became such an important thing, especially where it was connected with Baba. If you had sort of disappointed somebody else, I mean, that would be of no particular uh, meaning. But the fact that, I mean, you had done something that would cause displeasure in Baba's face, ah, it's terrible. And yet so often Baba would do something in a way that... Uh, you couldn't always understand why he was doing it. For instance, one time I said something to Baba. I meant it, what I said was I meant it in all good faith, what I'd said. But Baba took objection to what I said. And he became so annoyed with me that he said, I never want to see your face again. And I was sort of dismissed. And this was in the evening. And I thought, oh, God, Baba doesn't ever want to see my face again, so Baba's going to send me off tomorrow. I saw myself packing. I wondered where I would be going. And, I mean, the whole night, I mean, this was just going through in my mind. But what I said, I meant absolutely, I mean, I didn't mean anything by it, excepting that I said what I said in all sincerity, you know. And uh, still Baba objected and minded what I said, and now he says he doesn't want to see my face again. What's going to happen? I just thought, uh, how can I go to breakfast in the morning? I mean, I, I hardly felt I could face Baba, you see. So this way I thought, if I don't appear, Baba will say, where are you and what are you doing? So I may force myself to go into breakfast. Baba acted as if nothing had happened whatsoever. The whole incident was absolutely, whatever Baba had was working at the time, I don't know. The subject was never brought up again. Never was any mention again about what had happened. He never did he make it 
obvious to you that, he, that it was over? No, it's just as if it never happened. So I said to myself, well, if this is the way Baba wants it, I'll, I'll just forget it never <laughs> happened. <laughs> but really, I mean, Baba at that time was so... Mm, I don't want to see your face again. I mean, the gestures he made, you know? So what's going to happen? Maybe I'll land in Myrtle Beach. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> Uh, I just, I just, I just, my mind just boggled. I just didn't know what to think. And that the, that the next day, Bobby just absolutely wiped it off. Did the Westerners have to learn? I mean, did they uh, uh, being more sensitive to what Bobby wanted rather than what they wanted? Yes. Well, gradually, it must you, have been you a painful process. It was because you see, we were always have been so always uh, thought of our own selves in life before. And not to, to actually that every thought and every feeling should be centered on Baba. Naturally, you tried, but so often your little ego got in the way, and uh, you you'd want to assert yourself. That's just when Baba would tell me that I was arguing. You see, <laughs> instead of when I would try to tell him that I'm explaining something, and he'd say, "No, you're arguing," because. Uh, and yet Baba didn't want one to be too mamby-pamby. He had no use for that. But at the same time, you should know to differentiate when you can stand up to a situation and when you have to say, yes, Baba, and know that it's just that you uh, should not even uh, discuss the matter, just have it go that way. See, when we, after we came to Meribad, the whole uh, atmosphere of things changed completely in the sense that where we had had, that is, we Westerners, had had so much freedom with Baba before, now we realized that that time of freedom and just loving Baba outwardly and expressing that love whenever we felt like was a thing of the past. We should now feel Baba only inwardly and obey Baba. This was a period for obedience. We knew that Baba loved us just as much, even though Baba outwardly did not express that love for us. You felt that Baba, at least as far as I'm concerned, withdrew himself outwardly, but not inwardly. And uh, all the uh, situations that arose in the ashram, especially when we were such a big number. We were Easterners and Westerners. At one time, we were almost 40 people there. We were all, none of us, uh, mamby-pamby types of people. We were all people with a certain sense of character. And so naturally, people that are thrown together like that day in and day out are bound to have differences. And uh, particularly between the Easterners and Westerners where the language question came in. You'd understand that they had said such and so, and they'd understand you'd said such and so, and the first thing, there would be a clash, and all because it was a matter of misunderstanding. Other times, there would be a clash between Westerners because uh, of wanting to do certain things certain ways, and somebody else would want to do it their way, and neither wanted to give in. And very often, even when there would not be a clash of temperaments, and Baba would find things were going too smoothly, uh, Baba would uh, create situations. <laughs> and see how we'd stand up to it. And I always, as I say, the, say that that period there was a time of like 
using the simile of boiling jam. When jam is boiling, there's always at a certain time when the froth comes to the surface. And that froth has to be removed before the jam is pure and edible or eatable. And uh, the thing is that Baba would point out this froth to us, but Baba would not remove it. Baba would make us remove it. So the same way, like if we would have a fight, somebody with an altercation of words uh, over certain situations, Baba would make us see, see ourselves, you know, and hear ourselves, so that in time you learned that, I mean, these situations you were getting into were not worthwhile, they were meaningless, and you would try to avoid getting into those kind of situations. But it took a long, long time to do. I mean, I have now, probably at this ripe age, reached the stage where I don't fly into a temper. Sometimes I get annoyed about something, but then I'm always sorry afterwards that I've gotten annoyed. In those days, I never was sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I would just get annoyed. In fact, as I say, uh, in those days, my family had known I had a temper, but my friends didn't know, because there was nothing to get annoyed about outside with my friends. But uh, when I got in the ashram, then everybody knew I had a temper. And Baba had to get that out of my system, and the only way to get that out of my system is to work it out on others, and then hear myself and learn to control that temper. So this is what Baba did with all of us. He would, you know, play us off on each other, and at the same time would again make us come together, see our mistakes, and embrace and forget. It was very difficult at first because I didn't realize I had such a fiery temper. And some of these youngsters, like Erge's brother Mirwan and his cousins Dadi and Sam, they used to be scared to death of me when I when they were kids. You know, in those blue bus days when they'd get under my feet, you know, and get in the way. They were only being youngsters and fooling. But I was busy with work to do. You see, and I would toss them out to see and say, get out from under my feet, you know, and, thinking, and they would just see a rod and those big, big eyes going like this, and they'd run a mile. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> oh, dear. So the last time I saw Margaret Krask, I said, Margaret, they tell me that I've improved. She said, yes, I can see you have. So that was uh, something, because Margaret and I used to have a lot of altercations in the old days in the ashram, when we'd get on each other's nerves. So now, what shall I tell you? Where are we? Meribad. Well, Meribad, of course, then from there we started on the Blue Bus Tour. I mean, not immediately. The first summer we were in Panchakani because the poor Westerners had to have, you know, nice climate to get acclimatized in it. But then in um, autumn of 38, we started on the Blue Bus Tour. And my job was to pack the interior of the bus. And the Mandalay was supposed to tie up, pack the top of the bus with the bedding rolls and uh, odds and ends that we had. The first time when we left Maribad, we even had suitcases on the top, and the bus was so top-heavy it's the one that got down the hill. And after that, we cut off half the luggage on the top, so Baba said, you, all these things have to go by train, and we'll just take what's necessary. At first, Baba Molly coddled us by having Betty rolls brought down at night. Then he said, no, it's too much for the Mandalay to take these bedding rolls up and down. 
So you will have to make do with just some small bedding. So we'd have uh, a piece of uh, matting and maybe a sheet and roll it up into a little flat square bundle. Well, the bus was only meant for 14 people. So by the time we finished with packing it with humans, there were about 20-odd people because where there was supposed to be three abreast, two and one, and then they put a stool in the aisle, and then they would put those uh, small beddings, because they had to pile up somewhere, to smooth it across like this, so five people had to sit abreast, where three people had sat abreast. Well, it was all right where there were just uh, some small people, but when there's some nice big plumpy ones, I mean, it was pretty squashed. So Kitty and I used to always sit in the two back seats, and in the two back seats, at least we had the the vessels and the and the pails and the lanterns. And I mean, those we could shove aside if they sort of crowded us. But if you're sitting five people like this, I mean, you can't start, you know, spreading yourself too much. But it was a really a very packed bus. And as I say, I had to pack all the small bags as well inside. And they would not, we always left very early in the morning and they would not allow me to turn on the light because it used up the battery. So I was like a blind man. I used to have to just feel. So I memorized where all the luggage had to go. So I said, I've got to leave that space for Elizabeth's bag because that's always the last one to come. And here are these bags, just two come here, one comes here, just like this. And I knew exactly where everybody, everybody's bags fitted so that I could just like blindfold it every day because at evening I'd have to unpack it to give them, in the morning I had to pack it again for the rest of the journey. And then, of course, my temper would fly when I'd see somebody come along, put a nice bundle in the space where I'd kept for Elizabeth, or something over here where it would be in the way of somebody's feet, because I tried to think of people's comfort as well as getting the luggage packed, you know? And when I'd see people just put things indiscriminately, just without thinking, that used to get me so wild, you know? And those were always the times when Bobby used to sort of come along, you know, and just catch me on something, you know, and I'm like this. <laughs> and then I think, oh, gosh, now why did I do like that when Bobby came along? I should have sort of, you know, not acted like that. Why should I have been in such a cross mood? And then I'd be so annoyed with myself, and I'd say, well, now, now next time this is not going to happen. I've got to mind my P's and Q's now with Bobby and this blue bus. But the next time was something different. So again, I'd be caught out. And always Bob would do that. When you're in a nice, cool frame of mind, everything's going smoothly and everything, Bob wouldn't do anything. But when you are, haven't got control of your moods and all that, and you're tired and you're hot, then that's when Bob would get you. For instance, one night, we arrived at a dark bungalow. Kitty used to cook the doll in the morning. We'd take it along with us. It'd always be some uh, tomatoes and odds and ends of things, cheese and all that, so that if supposing the doll went bad, I mean, there'd be a little elite, something extra to eat. But uh, still, we never had big bumper meals. But Bobby used to always make Kitty keep a little extra, say for Elizabeth, who'd been driving the car, and for the Mundley, who after all were men and had to do the heavy bedding, so later on they didn't. And... Uh, so this particular day we arrived, the doll had gone sour. And all there was was a bit of tea, and then we'd get these men there at the bungalow to get milk for us. And I think bread and butter and 
Anyway, not a satisfying meal if you're hungry and tired, you see. So I looked over and I saw Elizabeth with tomatoes and cheese and all these different things, you see. So I said to Kitty, I'm hungry and I've worked as hard as anybody else and I want something to eat. She like this. Just let fly. Poor Kitty. I mean, she couldn't do anything on her own. So she went and I didn't realize she was going to do that. I probably would have thought twice. And uh, she went to Baba and said, Rana's hungry. So I don't know what else she told him. Anyway, by that time, having let off that steam, I was kind of cooling down and wished I hadn't. So Kitty says, Baba wants to see you. I said, Kitty, why'd you go to Baba for it? Well, I couldn't give you anything without tell, asking Baba. So I went to Baba. So Baba looks at me, nods. Ah, so I hear you're hungry. Well, I did say something about being hungry to Kitty. and. All that. Oh, too bad. All right. I've told Kitty to give you something to eat and see that you eat it. Because by that time, I mean, just the thought of that food just choked me and I just couldn't. I said, oh, Rana, I mean, again, you've gone and put your foot in it. Just because I, I mean, I was tired and I was hot and I was hungry and I didn't have sense enough to keep my mouth shut. I mean, that expression on Baba's face, oh, so you're hungry, as if nobody else was hungry there excepting me. <laughs> well, all, each little, little sort of incident like that, I mean, there is, it sort of was a notch on the way, you know, something for you to remember when your mind was feeling calm and try to profit from that experience that you had. For instance, one time when we were in Ajmer, uh, we had, Bob had been contacting quite a few musts. In fact, Bob also had some musts staying at the house there. And rarely, by this, this is the first time I'd known Bob having any musts staying in his room. He had two or three musts that he kept at that time. And then we were going up on this hill where there was a shrine. And Bob, instead of just going with the Monday, decided that he would take all us women with him. Taking us entailed quite a lot of trouble, and uh, Baba kept uh, emphasizing the fact that there was so much to do in the way of making arrangements to go up there on the hill. He was going to have to get coolies to carry up our beddings. The food arrangements had to be made. Uh, lift chairs had to be taken for people like Elizabeth and Nani who couldn't walk up that distance. And Baba over and over again kept telling us, what a lot of trouble it was, what an expense he was going through. And so we thought, oh dear, you know, I mean, Bob's going to do all this for us. So Kitty and I got our heads together one day and we said, now really, it's all right if Baba doesn't take us up. I mean, why should Baba go to all this expense and trouble for us? And so we went to Baba's room one day, said, Baba, can we speak to you? And Baba said, yes. So we said, Baba, we appreciate so much all this trouble and that you're going to to take us up the hill here to the shrine and us staying there and all the expensive food. But Baba, don't do it on our account. I mean, it's all right if we don't go, you see. Baba gave us one look, and he said, if you think I'm doing 